You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Matt Labate, SVP Digital at Fine Brothers Entertainment. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Great to be here. Great. So I wanted to start things off, kind of go back in time and talk about how you started your career as an independent film and TV producer. Yes. What attracted you to the media and entertainment space? What attracted me was that I was I wanted to be an actor when I was in high school. And so I moved out to LA, went to school, thought that that was going to be a thing I was going to pursue. I quickly realized it wasn't a thing that I wanted to do. Maybe I wasn't a really good actor, but it was more the behind the scenes and the business of media that really attracted me. So I quickly realized that and I had been to a couple of cattle calls along the way, realized I wanted to then focus on sort of how to make stuff in media and film was, the independent film was my first, you know, I'm a little older than a lot of people in digital space, so it was my first, I got excited about independent film because that was where people were telling real stories at the time when I was sort of breaking in, you know, it was, it was, it was what the internet is today, it was where people were able to do different types of content and media kind of outside of traditional, and so I jumped into that. Also because, incidentally, it's a lot easier to get work when you're helping your friends out with their independent film, you know, PAing on it, helping in all the various ways. So that's kind of what I jumped into. And then worked my way up from PA to producer on independent film in the Bay Area and in New York. So, you know, ended up going to Sundance with a couple of projects, some that I was sort of more of like a production manager on, others that I was a producer of. And again, it was really interesting for me because that was where interesting stories were being told. And then right around... The time that that bubble burst was when I was sort of catching my stride in it. And I was like, oh, that is over now. Interesting. And then, thank God, the internet started really coming up around that time. And so in 2006, you joined Sony to help grow the Crackle business. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. Yeah, so I was in New York at the time. I had gone to Sundance with a project that I'd worked on there for a couple of years. I got a call while I was there from a friend of mine who had been a co-conspirator in independent film for many years prior back in the Bay Area. His name was Tony Liano, and Tony had been an investor in a, a company called Grouper. Grouper had been acquired by Sony right around the time that YouTube was acquired by Google, or just before, and kind of validated the whole space. And he called and he said, hey, look, there's this company that was acquired by the studio. Would you be interested in helping me build out di- the digital side of it? Because at the time, it was just a bunch of engineers, you know, very smart engineers up in the Bay Area building a peer-to-peer slash YouTube competitor, but they needed the content side built. So... At the time, I was looking to move back from New York to the Bay Area, so I did, and we started building that out. And our early approach to Crackle was, and it's iterated many times over the years since other people have taken it on, but our early approach was to build out a a digital studio doing low-cost content, but not just, you know, kids on skateboards, right? We were like, that's already happening on the internet. People are sharing that video. Let's do the next level, but we're not going to be doing TV and film. It's not really, the economics aren't really there for that. So we're going to try to find some place in the middle where we are working with outside producers to create content, 
we sort of approached it from a vertical perspective. There's going to be a comedy vertical. There's going to be a music vertical. There's going to be other verticals. And then we would work with externals to create that content. And so I was sort of the EP over that studio, working with all those external vendors, helping to set the programming strategy and vision for each one of those verticals. And incidentally, also working with a studio to translate what was at the time a very traditional mindset in terms of digital was new. We were like, well, what are we going to do? We have all of these agreements we use for film and TV. How do we do that in digital? Kind of was all being defined at the time. So really spent a year working to integrate in studio ops into what then became Crackle as well. So much more of a focus on kind of this middle between the premium scripted stuff that Sony was producing at the time. And then, of course, more of the UGC formats that were popular on YouTube trying to find kind of bridge the gap in the middle. That's right. Yeah. And I think our early approach to it was the idea that You know, I don't know if we ever sort of said that this was our mission, but certainly some of the impetus for it was that Sony really didn't have its own broadcast, you know, spot at the time. So the internet could become their TV network, right? And that was sort of the idea that we at Crackle were initially approaching it as, is like, well, we could build out this network. They since iterated their strategy and, you know, went in directions that the industry took them in and did a lot of smart stuff after I left. But that was certainly the beginning part of it. And one of the things is that they had all these engineers we could interface directly with the hardware team in Japan, which was something that wasn't really connecting within Sony at the time. So we could uh, build into the TVs at the time, the idea that we could start building in the pipe for content to go through, which then the studio could leverage for the existing higher quality UGC content that we were doing and then the film and TV stuff as well. So it's interesting because you're kind of getting at the fact that the traditional media companies, Sony and Disney and Fox of the World, don't really own the distribution anymore. Right. And, and I suppose perhaps maybe they never really did because that was a, their, their fate was in the hands of the broadcast and cable operators. But do you think that the digital shift accelerated their loss of distribution power even further? I think you could say that. I think distribution is, you know, what was happening with BuzzFeed in the early days. They were sort of talking about how content is king and distribution is queen. And, and I think that is absolutely true. And, you know, there's you can find distribution in a lot of different places, whether you're using other people's platform like Google and, and Facebook currently, or you're big enough to be creating your own OTT uh, strategy, your own destinations, your own apps, you know, like Disney is starting to do, you know, or... You know, you're trying to find a, a distributed media strategy in a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways to approach it. And it's important. Distribution is absolutely important. Owning your own is sort of more expensive and harder to do now for individual creators, right? And and I think it's even harder for bigger companies to do. I think we approach it in the way of, like, distribution is necessary. It's not necessarily queen anymore. Community is more the queen. If content is still the king, you're still going to make great stuff. you got to have people to watch it. I'm not saying anything that's revolutionary. And then you just have to be smart about where you're putting it, right? And and whether it does pencil for you to own that own your own owned and operated or not, right? And the or not is challenging because then you have to share it with other people. And that also has its own economic realities. So in 2010, you ventured out on your own. Yeah. And make sure I have this right, but launching Fan Guild and Domino TV. Yeah, so that was also with a business partner of mine, Tony Liano. At the time, he and I decided we wanted to start our own thing. And a lot of it was him. He was very entrepreneurial and he, you know, kind of came up with the seed investment for it too. And I sort of How did you meet Tony? Tony Tony was the guy who I had known back in the independent film days of working together. He had had a film he wanted to do and I helped him produce his first film. Um, And then we just became friends and then he was the head of programming at uh, Crackle Gruber when it got acquired that hired me in. So then we both left and we wanted to start this thing. And so we had had two runs at it. We kind of iterated a couple of times. The first one was Fan Guild. So that was the idea that can you build a technology solution for IP owners, whether they're studios or independents, 
to have a fan solution, right? At the time, there wasn't a lot of the um, VIP music uh, fan-supported things and certainly none of the plat- what the platforms are doing today. So we were like, well, we could build something for people who have great content or great music or whatever and have fans and they want to talk directly to them. We're going to build a technology solution for that. And then we iterated it into Domino, which the idea there was more of a socially curated TV guide for all of the different sort of libraries out there of content that was being created from YouTube to private owned and operated libraries. But it was going to be socially driven, so you'd follow people and then they'd, you know, you'd curate whatever it is that they like and that sort of stuff. And then we also came up with the idea that maybe we would do some virtual currency with entertainment because there's like every time you would engage with a piece of entertainment, the idea would be that that would kind of generate some type of virtual currency. We could use that um, for content creators to be able to provide exclusives to people, also to raise money for projects, for fans to get access to exclusives or whatever. And then I think what happened for me was I, I'm not independently wealthy, so I think after a year I just kind of ran out of money to be able to do this on my own, and so I ended up having to move on. So at the time I met, you know, Ryan Vance and Jim Lauterbach at Revision Three, and they were building out what they were building. So I decided to join them, uh, which was prior to acquisition. Well, I want to learn more about Revision Three, but first, uh, what was it like being a first-time founder? Hard. What I learned from being a founder is two things. One is because it was a technology solution, you really have to find, you know, a great person who, and it could be two people, but a great sort of business and forward-facing expertise, you know, and skill set. And then you also need a technical expertise and skill set. You need a, you really need a technical co-founder. And and I think we didn't have that in the beginning. We did find our way towards it in the middle. But if I was to do it again, I would be, like, I would sort of think about it possibly differently around how you would approach it in terms of the right people, right? I always use that analogy of a great director and a great editor, right? A lot of times in TV, probably more so, in digital, maybe more so too, sort of the creative, the creator or the director is like the one who does everything, right? But in film, which is where I came from, the director-editor relationship is actually very powerful. And there's a lot of creative that comes out of an editor. And and sometimes if you're a great director, you find that right person. You're like, this is my collaborator in the edit room to find the story. Because maybe what I thought I was going to get, I didn't shoot or I didn't find it. And now they help me find this other version of it. And it's a very powerful creative relationship. So I think the same thing with technology, especially media solutions, is is a really strong relation between the business side and the, and the technical side. The other thing I learned was that it's just hard. You're always on it. You never really clock out. I love that. I'm a kind of a crazy workaholic. So for me, that's okay. I think there's probably another one in me at some point. We'll see what it is. But I have worked in large companies and in small companies. And I think where I thrive and where I probably operate the best is wearing multiple hats, doing multiple things, trying to build something that um, is sort of the lantern exercise if you've ever done that of like what's the what's the land what's the lighthouse exercise for you in your life if you are sailing your ship on a rocky sea what's the thing that you will point your ship towards right and you may never the way the lighthouse exercise goes is you may never reach that thing that perfection but at least you're you have a guidance something that's guiding you in a certain direction so i think for me my lighthouse is truly working with collaboratively with a group of people to achieve something and build something that doesn't exist today and finding the right way to do it and having fun along the way, working hard at it. But that to me is more fun than just you know jumping into a large organization uh, who already has sort of set ways of doing things and just kind of focusing on that one thing. 
What a great mission and uh, a reminder to enjoy the journey, figure out why you're on that path. That's good. Yeah. So so you mentioned you met Jim and the other co-founder of Revision 3 and uh, got intrigued by what they were doing. So tell us about the early days of, of Revision. Yeah, Rev3 at the time was interesting because so Jim was the CEO, Ryan Vance, who I ended up working for, was the uh, head of programming. And then it was founded by Kevin Rose and David Prager. And uh, those were the two that I knew. There were others involved along the way. They had been around for about six years. So I remember them back from when we were at Crackle. So part of the early days of that was sort of looking at even YouTube at the time. All of us were sort of small. YouTube definitely had an advantage of being bought for a billion dollars. But all of us were sort of small and going at the same thing. And there was like, I don't remember names back then, but there was like Rever and Vio and Break and all of these different like video destinations, Crackle, et cetera and Revision 3, and they stuck around. Like, there was, after sort of I Love Crackle, and Crackle kind of got folded into Sony, and then YouTube got folded into Google, and they each went their different ways. Some of those other ones just kind of died off, right? But Rev3 stuck around, even through the financial crisis. And so I was like, oh, what are they doing? That's really interesting. They're still around. And I was like, when I went there and met with them, I was like, you guys won. You know, we lost. It's not true, but uh, this is what I said at the time. So I was fascinated by that. And I found out that what it was was just a smart group of entrepreneurs who were supported by a great sort of sales and content strategy and also had a, a smart technology solution. We were doing distribution to lots of different partners. So we actually, part of our pitch at the time was all those different places that I mentioned there was like 40 partners that we were distributing our content to, and we had built the pipes, the back end for all that to happen. So it was a great engineering solution. Um, and at the time, nobody knew who was going to be the dominant distribution platform. So YouTube was still early. So that was a smart solution at the time. And as a result, their sales operation was really smart. They were able to really monetize in ways that people weren't monetizing in digital at the time. Um, you know, getting $40 CPMs back in 2007 was unheard of, you know. So, yeah. That was part of what attracted me. It was just that smart team. Uh-huh. Fantastic. So you stayed with them through the acquisition by Discovery. And uh, tell us a little bit more about what you focused on during your time at Discovery. So it was a couple of things. Early, prior to acquisition, I was helping build out what was our, what I would call our MCN strategy at the time. So a lot of just early partnership conversations with mostly YouTubers, you know, people who had built brands and sizable audiences on YouTube. Um, a lot of it was just a partnership relationship that was uh, for sales, helping them you know, to grow their channel a little bit with sort of audience development and other things and distribution, like I was just outlining, but also helping to monetize their content in ways that they weren't truly getting on, on YouTube at the time. Post-acquisition, there was a strategy to launch new content verticals. I'm using the word vertical loosely, but just this idea that, you know, Discovery at the time had, and still do, have, you know, their terrestrial brands, Discovery itself, Animal Planet, others. And so, we were sort of saying, well, can we create digital brands that have their own unique brand uh, and vision and voice and tone, but sort of mirror what's already happening on traditional with the idea that maybe that can be packaged together in a sales perspective. So I was in early days helping to sort of develop what those that programming content mix was and the sort of voice and tone for each of those networks and helping to build that out. And then as they scaled, you know, we sort of those things kind of went away into other places because teams would take them over, right? So sort of helping with that early iteration of that. Very good. Yeah. So after Discovery, uh, you transitioned back to the creative side and joining Reach Agency. Yeah. So how was it like working with Gabe Gordon and, and the Reach crew? Yeah, those guys, I love those guys, Gabe and Frank. They're sort of like guys that I would say are hard to find, right? Like they're just like genuine, authentic, loyal, good guys in the space. And, and the agency itself serves brands in a great way for what they do, which is helping to introduce them to 
this new world of influencer marketing, um, you know, taking taking on doing your own content, uh, which is something that brands have been doing and building your own channels and producing your own content or working with vendors to help you do that. So yeah, as head of creative there, I came in right when we had, I think at the time we had Purino as a client and Maria and we were working on a couple of other campaigns for other large brands. So it was it was a lot of like really interesting work from my perspective, learning how marketers really think and what kind of things that they want to achieve in the space. And, you know, coming from sort of just the content side, just making content for audiences is interesting, but then thinking about, well, what does the brand need to achieve? And it's not always just as easy as making something great for that that people would love and click on and respond to and kind of have these marketing objectives to hit. So it was really interesting to sit with with them and, and their clients and figure that out. And did you carry those lessons forward to some of the work that you do today at Fine Bros? I do, I do yeah. think so. Yeah, cool. I think it's really interesting to have anybody who works in content that is supported by brands to have had that experience with them to really understand where they come from because they sometimes are really helping to keep you know studios in the black. You know. Yeah, definitely. So tell us a little bit more for those who aren't familiar about FBE and some of the things that you focus on. Yeah. So FBE is a digital studio, right? We we have aspirations to be a much larger media company, but I do think we are a media company today. We produce content for Facebook and YouTube. Some of the series that you're familiar with are the React series, Kids React, Teens React, Elders. We also do other content, uh, game shows, Try Not to Laugh, um, Do They Know It? Um, you know, there's, there's a food series that we do. So with 15 different digital series that we do, they're weekly or bi-weekly on uh, primarily Facebook and uh, YouTube. YouTube has been around for about you know, a decade as a company, YouTube is the core of where we distribute our content. Um, but we are going to other platforms, you know, certainly looking at putting content up on all the social uh, platforms. We're building out an OTT strategy. We have a alternative TV development team, you know, we sold 15 shows. We have a feature film up on Netflix that we did last year as well. So we really are, you know, we're a 75 person company now up to over 250 million views a month, 30 million subscribers. So, you know, starting to see that scale really and since i've been here in the past three years you know really hockey sticking up so how did you meet the fine brothers and and decide to get involved so i actually met them when i was at crackle like they were early just out of um film school i was doing a lot of those early i was in development at the time and so i was doing a lot of those early development conversations with all the people that you would have known from that first iteration of the internet right so you know lisa nova i met with with lisa nova and Felicia Day and the Fine Brothers and others who, you know, went on to build big parts of what we know today. Uh, and at the time, you know, no um, fault of Sony or Crackle, you know, there's just they didn't really have a way to take what was happening at the time and, and turn it into something for the studio. So, you know, it was just early just meetings, you know, that I was having with them. So I kind of kept in touch with the guys ever since. And they ended up partnering into Revision 3, MCN, uh, part of my efforts, and then you know, as just being friends. And then after I moved to LA, I had been in the Bay Area for a while, I moved to LA for Reach. Then I came down here, we ended up having a conversation, decided they were, they were just really at this inflection point, you know, and really starting to scale out the business. Um, so, you know, I decided to join the company. Very cool. Yeah. And you mentioned that you, the core of the business kind of started in YouTube, but you've since expanded to other distribution platforms and to other kind of types of content. I'm curious, how's the Facebook distribution strategy worked for you? Has that been successful? Yeah, Facebook has been a good thing for us for the last year and a half. We have approached it in a syndication strategy in the beginning. You know, we're now sort of really starting to lean into platform intentionality, creating content that works differently on, on both platforms and leveraging the equity of the shows that we have on both places and other places as well but it's been great 
to work with the platform uh, direct behind the scenes. We have a good relationship with the platform as they've been scaling and growing their video efforts, as well as using what is, you know, a very large platform to access a very large group of people across the world. And it's pretty amazing how, how you can sometimes see something just take off. And with, you know, billions and billions of people on the platform, it can just take off. And that's really interesting to us. Yeah, I've heard, you know, some people, a lot of people were excited about the opportunities that Facebook presented, call it a year and a half, two years ago. I think some publishers have been a bit disappointed in the monetization. You know, the CPMs are low and, and uh, still fill rates are a bit limited, which is, you know, a similar experience to what people faced in the early days of YouTube. So it's probably all part of the natural maturation of things. But uh, it's good to hear that, you know, there's there's a way to find success on some of these other distribution outlets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's it definitely is in digital, as I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners would know and understand. It's work, you know, like digital. It's I think for some people, sometimes maybe you stumble into something and, and maybe it pops for you. And as an individual, maybe influencer that that's, you know, a, a quick and fast thing. But for a lot of people, it is it is even for them. You know, you're you're working a lot. You have to really hit a regular schedule. You have to put up that content. You have to engage with the people. You have to, you know, hit all the different channels and all of the different platforms are providing all a lot of different features. And so you sort of have to, at a certain point, focus on like, well, which one is really like how much time do I have in the day? How many resources, how many people do I have to do stuff? If it's just me, I can't do them all. So which ones should I really focus on? It, it does make you, it forces you to choose, you know, and it's, it's hard work. What does the future hold for FBE? FBE is continuing to scale and to grow. We're continuing to obviously make content for and shows for people who love what we make, continue to engage them, grow those audiences continuing to grow on the platforms that we're on currently as well as uh, expand to other platforms you know relatively platform agnostic in a lot of ways we certainly know where our sort of valuable relationship is on each of our platforms but you know we sort of see if there's a community of people who are interested in you know engaging with content in in ways that fit what we're making then we'd like to be there um, and we'd like to provide the opportunity for them to see what we make. So what are some of the platforms that you're kind of keeping an eye on? Uh, I would say that, you know, certainly we're going to continue focusing on YouTube and Facebook. The other platforms that are interesting is sort of this vertical video thing, what's going on there, you know, anything that has social to uh, connected to it. Um, this idea of OTT and just being able to have apps on your phone that then can deliver content to you is interesting. Live is very interesting. You know, continuing to build hit IP, the studio has done a great job at finding intellectual property that really works and is repeatable and continuing to build those large shows in digital. Using digital to incubate and grow other properties for other, you know, mediums, if you will, for traditional, you know, longer form uh, TV and film is, is something that we'll continue doing as well. Uh, zooming out, what do you think is coming next for the digital landscape more broadly? Are there some trends that you see in the industry or any predictions you have to offer? Yeah, I mean, everything I'm going to say is going to be wrong, I'm sure tomorrow because everything changes so quickly but i don't know it does seem like there is a consolidation phase that we have been due for that we're probably in the midst of the early probably days of i do think that there's a lot of you know a lot of people use the word platform wars that are going on and i, I don't know if it's actually a war much more of a just hey there's a lot of opportunity and you know sort of a lot of mixed opportunity for different platforms to say well we can offer these things for creators and fans to engage with each other and and let's do it. And so there's probably going to be a shaking out of who's good at each one of those things. Like all of them are trying to do all the things now. And there probably needs to be just some focus from the platform side as to really who's good at each of the things. And then 
we as creators will be like, oh, it's so much easier. Now I know. Like, if I want to do that, I go here. If I want to do live, I go there. If I want to do this, I go over there. That certainly seemed to be the case when they first rolled out. But you're right. That now that they copy the same features, everyone has stories. Everyone has live video, right? Everyone has uh, hashtags and keywords, right? It's, it's all kind of like, how do, you, how do you create a unique content strategy, to your earlier point, for each platform? And as a creator or a publisher, how do you decide which platforms you need to be on? Especially if, you know, the, the experience for the user is increasingly more homogenous. Right, right. And and at a certain point, too, you just focus. You pick. You pick the one that works. And I sort of come from and I subscribe to that iterative, you know, startup model of, like, we'll just start. And if you're starting to get response in one place, whether it's a content pick or, an, or a platform pick or whatever it is, just lean more into that. Continue leaning into the things that work. A-B test. Continue using the tools to A-B test those things. Look at the data. It's always important. Um, it helps drive your creative and your programming strategy. Um, and if you're not, then... You're, you're really missing out on a big part of the tools that need to drive success. Look at your data, figure it out, and continue growing and providing an experience to fans that matter to them, right? That's yeah. the most important thing. You also mentioned consolidation. I'm curious, what do you think is driving that? Is this just cyclical? We go through these kind of waves of expansion and, and again, consolidation or contraction. And is that coming as a result of value and seeing success from M&A transactions? Is it coming from the fact that the environment is too competitive and there's going to be some winners and some losers? What do you see? Yeah, I think it's on two sides. One of them is on the digital side, the sort of the world that I'm in. Um, there is a, you know, problem of, we've all heard it and talked about, which is kind of the creator burnout issue of, you know, having to, once you're in, having success on platforms and you're in that midst, it's sort of like you have to keep it going. You have to just keep pedaling the bike uh, because otherwise it feels like you might slip off and, and, and then never be able to come back because there's always something else that's like this shiny object that's there for the fans to go find, right? It's like this unlimited content well that's out there for fans and for viewers. So that's challenging, right? Like that is not everybody continue. Nobody can do that forever. So you end up having just being able to sort of force people to consolidate in the space because of that. So there's always winners and losers in any business, right? And I think that's going to be the same case here for platforms and for creators. It is cyclical, like you said, but there has been this expansion recently. So, <clears throat> excuse me, but on the traditional side, which is also affecting everything that's happening on, the, on our side, there's the same disruption that's happening. And so the consolidation there is just that there's probably too much overhead on the big company's side for what they're doing. We're already seeing them, you know, some of them making moves to be like, well, let's buy into the digital space and figure that out. Others just seeing the, the competition from the Amazon, Netflix, even Google, Facebook studios of the world just sort of encroaching on what they're doing. And so that's just going to force a consolidation, too. Yeah. This year, for the first time, Netflix won the same amount of Emmys as HBO, right, which uh, ends their 16-year streak. It's, it's pretty remarkable that these digital players are competing at such a high level, right? I mean, Amazon Studios won an Oscar two years ago. So has the game just fundamentally changed? In some ways... The game is exactly the same, right? Create hits for people that, you know, create great content for people that they want to watch and continue coming back to. That doesn't matter what platform or what player it exists that's out there. That's still, it's still a hit-based business, and that hasn't changed. And so, yeah, the players are changing. Certainly the ways that a creator can think about how they do that, how they provide a hit to a fan has expanded, right? You have a longer time, longer or shorter lengths that you can create great content in. There's vertical and horizontal formats. There's, you know, interactive and non-interactive um, or VR or whatever it might be. There's, there's just an expansion of the ways that you can do that. And 
I think that's an exciting, it's still an exciting time for any viewer because there are so many options and because there is this golden age of like, man, there are Emmy, amazing Emmy-worthy content, whether they win an Emmy or not, coming out of all these different places. You know, how lucky is it for me to be able to have access to all that stuff? Can't watch it all. N never will be able to, but that is an exciting time. So, so yeah, in some ways, it's very much the same. You touched on the issue of creator burnout, yeah. uh, which, of course, has been in the, the news a lot recently. How have Benny and Rafi combated that over the years? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I, I can't speak for them entirely. What I will say, and I know, is that the, the guys work harder than anybody I've ever worked with. They are incredibly fast and they have out of all the people that i've met in this space been able to really look at all of the different pieces that are required from creative to a business to a sort of thinking about data and algorithms to you know forging relationships with platforms and creators and others within the space that is a prerequisite for success um, they've kind of they are these all-in-one you know extraordinaires that can do all of those things you know uh, i think like with anybody over time you gravitate towards the things that you like and you want to do more of. And so I don't think they're any different than anybody else in that respect, especially as they've built out this 75-person company that now has people dedicated to certain things that, you know, back in the day, maybe they had to do a lot of themselves. And so I think that, you know, again, putting words in their mouths probably, but uh, I think that they see that that's an interesting development of, you know, kind of having gotten to this this place. Yeah. I had Barry Blumberg on the show. We talked a lot about how uh, the, the Smosh creators, right, Ian and yeah. Anthony, had uh, gone through something very similar where they've ultimately gone on to build a brand and a media business that's much bigger than themselves. Right. So, uh, you know, going from being, you know, talent and doing everything behind the scenes to leveling up and, and running more as a business and being involved, but also diversifying the type of programming that they're offering and getting more voices on camera so they can spend more time in their sweet spot, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's like what we all hope for in success in building any startup is to be able to do that, right? Like there's a lot of necessity to building something and then there's a like, okay, now we've built something. Can we, yeah, sit in that sweet spot? Yeah. Good way to say it. Good. So one question I'd love to ask people is, uh, do you have anything that you believe that someone else might think is completely crazy? Any strongly held contrarian views about the digital industry? One thing I've been debating recently is this OTT thing. It's, it's an interesting thing to me because there's a lot of people approaching it right now. Um, in a lot of ways of looking at it, one of the kind of common themes that I've been sort of seeing and hearing as well is the idea, and I subscribe to this sometimes, is the idea that, well, if we just start creating more of a linear experience, it's a, it's a curated experience, right? So <clears throat> let's say I'm doing a brand and it's a comedy brand, I'm going to call it, you know, the best comedy you'll ever see. That's a terrible title, but whatever. It's going to be a comedy brand that I'm providing. It's not, it's like a digital comedy central, right? And and so it's a, I know there are a bunch of people out there that like different types of comedy. They like stand-up and they like, you know, comedic scripted and they like all these different types. So they can go out and find all that content on demand however they normally do it on all the different platforms. But there's probably a group of people this is and this is the debate. This is like the thing that I that I think is not held by everybody else. There's the debate that well, but also aren't we all just inherently lazy and we want someone else to tell us here's the comedy brand? Just go and I'm going to get you the best stand up that you need to watch today, the best scripted comedy that you need to watch today. It's all going to be here. Just come here, subscribe to my thing, and I'll give it to you. And you you'll get it on demand, so you can choose the series you want to watch and binge them. But also you could just lean back and maybe watch four hours of something at night, you know, after you're done with work, and it's just going to be a great curated experience for you. 
And like that's an old traditional television programming model, right? And it is smart because there's a there is a lot of inherent laziness that we have that I have at least. And I do kind of want someone to just tell me what's good sometimes to to watch it. But and so there's a lot of effort being put into this OTT of saying, well, let's sure. do that again, but we'll do it in an app environment so you can do it on mobile and you can get it in all the places that millennials and Gen Z want to get their content. Um, so you're alluding to like what Pluto TV and the Q and others are doing. And, and you know, what we're doing and what other, yeah, and other creators are starting to do it. And so what I don't know the answer to is I like the concept of that. I like the concept of like, yeah, there's a reason why content programmers existed in the past. I have this debate with the platforms all the time, too, where I've talked about how I think the algorithm has taken that power away from content programmers, right? There is the, like, you're a creator now and you're a fan. And and the platform's in the middle to connect the two. But there was once this relationship between content and fans of, and it was this programming layer of, like, let me curate an experience for you. And there's a reason why this brand exists. HBO is a great example of that. And you uh, have affinity to that brand because they've given you content a way that you like. So I guess what I'm this thing that's being held is I'm not sure that the new I don't I'm not convinced and I don't know the answer is to whether that is the the answer for the next generation of consumers of content because they obviously have and we all have proven that we're willing to wade through all the noise and just have our own pick whatever we want whenever we want. And so I just don't know. I don't know the affinity to maybe I'm just going to like that was only a phase of our consumption. And now, no, I truly do want to go back to just having stuff given to me in a curated way. It's a fair point. I don't think we have enough data yet. So time will tell. I believe that technology and the ability to curate personalized recommendations for people like what Netflix does and its algorithm, what Spotify does and and its playlist today will help people wade through the sea of choices. I, like you, am skeptical uh, perhaps a bit about the future of some of those you know, linear replacements leveraging digital programming. So we'll yeah, see. Yeah. We could both and, be wrong. <laughs> and maybe we're both, and we probably are both going to be wrong because I certainly know that a lot of those people are seeing a lot of growth right now. Um, and it is working. And there is, a, I think there's a bunch of people out there that in the world in general that probably don't want to do as much work. And they're just more of the silent majority. So you mentioned you might have uh, one startup left in you still. So I'm curious if you were going to launch a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? It's definitely something in the intersection between media and technology. I think that's where my sweet spot and my interest lies. I think helping to solve hard problems for creators is probably also where uh, my, you know, sort of my interest lies. There's there's a lot of I think there's a lot of value in potentially working from outside with solving problems at the so that's one bucket what I just said and then the second bucket is you know working from the outside from the, the platforms themselves to help them solve problems that maybe via inertia they're not able to do internally as quickly so um, there's a couple of thoughts there too but you know I'm in no means ready to do that at any time soon this is a great uh, company that's being built here today we're doing a lot of great stuff. Um, we're building a lot of, there's a lot of entrepreneurial build happening here. So, so I, I, that's down the road, but you know, I think, I think that's, those, those are sort of my two buckets, you know, media technology for creators, and then also helping to solve, you know, what the platforms are driving towards, which is sustainable future for themselves. Surely. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you and more about FBE? FBE, you can find us on, you know, FBE and react on YouTube and FBE and FBE shows on Facebook, you know, we, myself, uh, I'm just on Twitter and LinkedIn, you know, 
It's the only place you can find me, Matt Levate. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Matt, thanks again. This has been so much fun just to learn a little bit more about your history through uh, the early digital environment to where we are today and, and sorting through some of these upcoming platform challenges, potential consolidation, the future of linear versus digital. It's really exciting. So um, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.